Okay. You so you say we are, so we are, right? Hey, let's move the glasses. I'm in that position now where I can't see with them and I cannot see without them. That's all. Okay, here we go, I guess. Reasonably starting on time for us, that's fantastic. I need to start out by saying that we will not be having class on the 27th of June or the 4th of July. We will be back on July 11th. So I have at least three or four sermons here today. So a special Father's Day sermon. And I got a lot to do. I got a tremendous amount of information today. And I would I would tell you that it's way too much, which is kind of what I do now because we no longer have a music service. So I just try to put the lecture together as best I can. Uh, but if those of you who who find this to be onerous, and I understand why you would, uh, skip to the end, because I think you'll find the end more interesting than the beginning and the middle. Well, we'll have to see. Anyway, okay, here we go. June the 20th, 2001. Ah, 2001. <laughs> wow. June the 20th, 2021. Lecture discussion number 142 on the book of Joel. Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23, and Daniel. Daniel belongs in the, in the beginning of that, but I left it out until the end this week. It's come to my attention that I have created some confusion. Uh, imagine that. Who could have uh, predicted perturbation at uh, beautiful downtown Cliffside besides everyone? Apparently what I'm doing is I have this inclusion of 1 Kings 13 and 2 Kings 23 in the lecture discussion title. Again, uh, Revelation, Daniel, Joel, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. All of those. Um, and that the fact that I have 1 Kings 13 for 2 Kings 23 in the discussion title has caused some to question why. Well, why are they there? They don't belong there. And obviously, Daniel 9, Joel 2, Revelation 9, they're relevant to this list that's on the board. That makes a lot of sense to everybody, and that's wonderful. I'm glad that it does. And, and all of those address the fallen angelic condition, which is essentially what we're doing, because of some wonderful lady named Valerie, I think, out of Florida. Um, and, and also, Revelation 12 does, obviously. That's the angelic war. That's Re- Revelation 20, Revelation 21. Again, Revelation 12 is a final warfare in heaven, so that makes sense. Revelation makes a lot of sense when you're talking about the angelic condition. Uh, Revelation 20 through 21 outlines the second death, death, which is the casting into the lake of fire. That's the eternal death. That's finally uh, Matthew 25, 41 coming to fruition. And so, yes, we see Revelation in there easily. Uh, we also have... In contrast to the eternal death, the lake of fire, we have the new city of Jerusalem, which is free. And that's the saved of humanity and the faithful angels. So all of those things in Revelation, uh, especially that describes the destination and the eternal life of the citizens of the new Jerusalem, which are both angels and human beings. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. And and so uh, I think everybody understands that. We have this comparative aspects that are fixed. God has this definition of death in the second death. In other words, what I'm saying is is that his definition of death is not what we say. It is the second death. It is the lake of fire. His definition of life is the new Jerusalem. So when he says life and death, we must pay attention to what he means. We have, as a general rule, this much lesser definition of life and death. Uh, It's shallower. 
Uh, and, and that's shameful, actually, and it's confusing. It's much like the church's failure to properly define son of God or son of man. The church handles that horribly. Son of man is, is 90 times in Ezekiel. Uh, and Christ, it's his favorite thing to say. I wouldn't say favorite, but it's the thing he says of him, himself the most. He calls himself son of man. Uh, and Son of God, again, is Proverbs 30. And, and Son of Man is a Messianic uh, title. It's Matthew 25, 31. But the church never says that. They have no idea. Hardly ever says it. And they make the Son of God to be inferior, as you know. And it, that is horrifying. <sighs> Where am I? Ecclesiastes rightly and easily attaches to Joel and Revelation because of Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, the body returns to dust. The spirit, soul, mind, consciousness returns to him who gave it. It's the two returns. Ecclesiastes 12.7. The returning of the two substances is a profound truth of the Bible. The Genesis 2.7 truth. Genesis 2.7 tells us this incredible thing. The body and the soul combined into one person. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130 tells us the same words, body and soul, combined in an animal. Living beings are two materials, a material of dust and a material that's given by God only. Only God can give it. Only God can, can have it. And so understanding that is a precondition to grasping the unfathomable complexity of the Bible. If you start out not knowing that, that he establishes that principle, the body of, that came from dust that returns to dust now because of the fallen aspect of Adam and the spirit, soul, mind, consciousness that returns to him because it has to return to him. It has no place to go but to him. So life is a gift in the sense that uh, that aspect of it has to come from God himself and he must freely give it. Genesis 2.7, Ecclesiastes 12.7 are, are a substrate to all of the Bible. And if you're reading the Bible without understanding them, then uh, you're going to find difficulty. Life is a gift from Christ Jesus, who's God himself in the flesh. And Job uh, outlines the conflict that exists in the angelic kingdom. Job gives us the satanic lie in chapters 1 and 2. God's permission, uh, and that's amazing. God gives permission to Satan in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. The solution to Satan's lie is ultimately resurrection. The book of Job ends with resurrection. That's how I know that's true. First Job in 1 and 2 gives us uh, the lie of Satan. And then in Job 42, and in the final words of Job 12 through 15 of chapter 42, we have the resurrection defeating the lie of Satan. And so we understand what Job is doing on to this list. So those are all easily collated into a nice little neat binder. And I've heard no complaints yet about Joel or Daniel or Revelation, Ecclesiastes or Job. Not one. So you, and, and they're all required for our, our list. And you've got to group them together for that matter. But 1 Kings 13 and 2 Kings 23, that's where people are going, what are you doing? Crazy old man. In other words, how is it that the unnamed prophet who was killed by the lion because the unnamed prophet ate bread and drank water with the old prophet? How does that fit with this list? It shouldn't be here. And why did the old prophet, who I call Nicodemus, there's a little clue for you. Why did the old prophet slash Nicodemus retrieve the body of the unnamed prophet? Why did he do that? 
The old, why didn't he leave the body in the middle of the road with the lion and the donkey? But he didn't. He went and got the body, so he retrieves the body of the unnamed prophet, and that's why I call him Nicodemus. I hope you can figure out why that is the case. His body had not been eaten, the unnamed prophet, nor had his donkey been torn. The lion stood by the body, which lay on the road, the lion and the donkey and the body all in the road, blocking the road. What's that got to do with the angelic realm and how it coexists with humanity today and in the past? And men went by the lion standing in the middle of the road with the donkey in the body. Now, if I was one of those guys, am I going by that body? No, I am not. We live in Alaska. If I find a dead moose that's been killed by a bear, I do not go near the body because I know what's going to happen. That bear is going to come for me every single time. But these men pass by, and I try to imagine it for a minute, what they were thinking. And then they go straight to the old prophet and told him, as soon as they see that body, that donkey, and that lion in the middle of the road, their first idea is to go to the old prophet and tell him about it, which I find fascinating. And the old prophet, slash Nicodemus, brought the body back and placed the body in a tomb. That's what he did. And that's, by the way, oh, that is why and I have to stop saying that makes sense because I'm assuming that it doesn't or does that make sense because it never does okay rarely anyway he tells his sons when I am dead place me in the tomb with the man of God lay my bones besides his, but beside his bones that's his plan obviously the old prophet reached the obvious the man of God would be resurrected. Otherwise, why would he want to put his bones with the man of God's bones? He knew those bones are going to be resurrected. How did he know that? The man of God would be resurrected by the coming man of God. He knew that this man of God, is a he somehow got it all figured out. Good for him. And I think it came out of his uh, prophecy that he gave, and I'll explain that sometime in the future. Uh, the man of God it would be would be resurrected by the one who he portrays, which is the man of God, which helps you understand son of man, right? The behold a child Josiah by name. That's what it says there in the prophecy that the man of God gave to to the king. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, would come and resurrect the dead and put an end to the ways of the wicked ones, Josiah being a portrayal of that, a type of Christ. That's exactly what he did. He got rid of all of the evil priests that had come out of 1 Kings 13. Now, I said before that 1 Kings 13 has the element of Elisha's body in a tomb, 2 Kings 13, 20 through 21, where the bones of Elisha, if you touch them, that resulted in the resurrection. And in the case of Elisha, it actually resurrected a dead man. All he had to do was touch the bones of Elisha, who is a type of the omniscience of Christ, in the tomb, and he resurrects. If anybody had known that, they would not have put a rock in front of the tomb of Christ, would they? What they would have done is said that whole, it's like banjos, the old joke. I put a banjo in my Suburban, I left the doors unlocked. When I came back, there were 25 more banjos in there. Hoping I'd take them to the dump, right? Well, it's the same thing. If I'm at the time of Christ and he's in a tomb, I don't want that stone put in front of him. That whole tomb should have been filled with bodies. All of them would have been resurrected based on Second Kings, right? 23. 
it should be clear that the old prophet was able to recognize the principle. He wished to be side by side with the man of God because he knew when the man of God resurrects, I will be resurrected. And Christ, of course, is the first fruits of all the resurrected. And this is a portrayal of that. His bone touching the bones of the man of God. Great wisdom there that he had. Once again, as with Job 42, Ecclesiastes 12, Ezekiel 37, uh, Joel 2.32, Daniel 12.10, Revelation 7.14, Genesis 28.13, Matthew 22.32, Christ is the God of the living. Living. As Christ himself so defines life. What is the definition of life when God says life? It is the new Jerusalem. It isn't this. What we have. Take a look at me. This is not life. This is definitely not life. It's a lot of things, and life isn't one of them. Life is the new Jerusalem. Begin to think that way. The, life, the new Jerusalem, which is free. We are not free here. Job 42 and 1 Kings 13 demonstrate that the solution to the lie of Satan, the lie of death, because his lie causes death if you believe it, because you will reject the truth of life for the lie of death. It's the lie of the lake of fire. Again, Matthew 25, 41. And that those who hate the truth of the resurrection unto life will not be written in the Lamb's book of life and therefore will perish in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. Everyone, whenever you watch these comedians or whatever, they always assume that Satan is in control of the lake of fire. He's not. There is no control. Let me repeat it. I've said that earlier this, this month. When you're in the lake of fire, it's utter, complete darkness. There's no photon, not a single photon of light. Everybody is blind. Going back to Sodom and Gomorrah, going back to the Syrian army, all of these blindness things that occur. So those who hate the, the truth of resurrection unto the new Jerusalem will not be written in the Lamb's book of life and therefore will perish in the lake of fire with Satan in stark, absolute contrast with the New Jerusalem, the citizens, uh, the, the occupants of the New Jerusalem that descend. Somehow, resurrection to life destroys the light of, lie of Satan. I said that last week. Somehow, when we can see resurrection to the New Jerusalem, we are, no, we are witnessing the destruction of the lie of Satan. As testified by Job 42, 1 Kings 13, Daniel 12, Revelation 7. Revelation 21, Revelation 7, 17. Resurrection is the ultimate reversal of entropy. We have thermodynamics. The world is constantly going towards entropy. It takes outside energy in order to stop entropy. And resurrection is, an, is the ultimate reversal of it. Death is the apex, if you will, of entropy. Going to dust, entropy. Dust is chaos. It is not complexity. So we have to re reverse the simple to the complex. We don't have to. He does. It's one thing to reverse the entropy of the heavens and the earth. All things made new. Revelation 21.1. It's quite another level to reverse Ecclesiastes 12.7. Or Genesis 2.7. In other words, what I'm trying to say, he has to find the mind, the consciousness, the soul, the spirit. He knows where it is. What is in the mind? Inside the mind is thoughts. All the thoughts. Every single thought you have ever had, knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or subconsciously. 
has to be found in order for you to be resurrected, has to be restored. Every single thought. Information must be preserved. If not, then we are tampering with existence and he is not going to tamper with existence. So there's your first step to solving the truths or the messages of resurrection. Resurrecting uh, living beings to life. The preservation of informational conservation is the principle here. Physicists have long known that there is preservation of informational material. There's informational conservation. Now the black hole people think black holes destroy information. They do not. That's Susskind versus Hawking. John Bell. And all of that, the preservation of information, descends from God's principles, the laws of conservation of mass and conservation of energy. Nothing will be lost except the sins of the saved will be covered by the blood of Christ and shall not be remembered. But that's a big difference from destruction or annihilation. Okay? So resurrection is more about the mind than it is the body. The mind contains information that the body does not. And it's not even close. Okay, so that is why 1 Kings and 13 and 2 Kings 23. Where are we? Not to be confused with where where were we? Two completely different problems. <coughs> Excuse me. From last Sunday, how is the lie of Satan antithetical to the killing of man at Revelation 9:15? How are they in conflict? Revelation 9:15 is in conflict. It's in collision with the lie of Satan. We slightly began that equation last Sunday. Obviously, we will, lead, we will need another one of these guys. I can't put that on the board. There's so many aspects to it. i got to have another most holy platinum model reversible dry erase board in order to put how is it that the lie of Satan is actually in a collision with the resurrection. And, the, I'm, and I'm sorry, and the killing of man at Revelation 9.15. All of that takes another board twice this size, frankly. So we're not going to be able to do that for a while. Um, we'll have to submit a proposal to the uh, Cliffside Accounting Commission, uh, which is Lori. She won't go for it. She doesn't want this one in the house. Uh, it's a subsidiary of the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority. Uh, so we have that on the on the that we have to deal with, I believe, to to make how is the lie of Satan in collision with the killing of men at Revelation nine fifteen? Also, is this issue of wiping away tears, which is Revelation seven seventeen and twenty one four? Previously, at Revelation seven nine and seven seventeen, there's this great multitude that no one could number. It says no one can number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, saying, "Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." Can't count those people. All the un, un, innumerable, it says, cannot be counted. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He is the belonger. Belonger status. He has all the rights. There is a word belonger. Look it up. It means having all the rights to that which you 
which belongs to you. He's the owner of salvation. That's what they're shouting. I have this incredible multitude. Start thinking about how big it is. It's two billion people at minimum, but it could be more. And they are crying out as one. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The owner of salvation is the Lamb of God, the Lamb slain, Revelation 13.8. Obviously, Revelation 7.10 is a triune verse. I have Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb sits on the throne. It's talking about the triunity, the nature of God. Genesis 1.26. So you have to know that, otherwise you get confused. Is the church confused about how the triune God functions? Yes, they think the Son of God is inferior to the Father. And they say so all the time. It's not true. So anyway, the owner, the one who possesses salvation, is the one who sits on the throne and who is the lamb slain. A triune verse. And he and he alone is in possession of salvation. This is why everyone is frustrated. Why do you Christians say only Christ can save you? Because he's the one that owns salvation. No one else owns it. Salvation belongs to him. And this is what this crowd, this multitude that no one can count, is screaming at the top of their lungs in Revelation 7, 9 through 7, 17. He and he alone is in possession of salvation. That's what they're saying. Salvation is both an act of mercy and grace, and it's also a person. He is salvation itself, and he is the one that owns salvation. The person of Jesus Christ is salvation. That's what his name means, Proverbs 30, verse 4. So i got this great multitude which cannot be counted. These are the ones who came out of the tribulation, Revelation 7, 14. They're killed in the tribulation. Who killed them? This is a huge number of dead people. Revelation 9.15, that's what happened to them. Because they had the indwelling of Christ, having the seal of the living God. That's why they're killed. Their clothes were washed white in the blood of the Lamb. He does a bunch of things, God does. He washes. These are, these are people whose bodies have yet to be resurrected. They are at the throne, and their robes are washed white by blood of, by the blood of Christ. They had the seal of Christ, and they were killed in the revel, in the tribulation, Revelation 9:15. He gives them new names. He gives them a white stone. Uh, he gives them hidden manna. Why does he do that? What does that mean? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation 7.13 to 7.17. And as usual, now we have a cornucopia of questions that come flying out and whoop us upside the head. We already asked, why, why were these who were killed crying? They're crying. They're standing before the throne of God and crying. And he has to wipe their tears. Again, 21.4 Revelation does the same thing. So I wanted to start asking questions. When I see crying people at the throne, what are they crying about? I want to know how many are children. All children come to Christ, Matthew 19, 14. All children. Do not forbid them, he says. There's a lot of doctrine out there that says Christians, I'm sorry, that God is not going to save children. Uh, again, Matthew 19, 14. Do not forbid them. The Lamb who is on the throne, Revelation 7, 17, the Lamb, who is, the Lamb who is in the midst of his throne, again, triunity, will shepherd these this uncountable multitude that has been killed in the tribulation and lead them to living fountains of water. That's what it says in Revelation 7. And God will wipe away every single tear from their eyes. Every tear. Again, why are they crying? 
They're in front of God. You would think they wouldn't be crying, but they are. So what are they crying about? And why does he have to wipe away their tears? And how does this happen? And, and these are, again, those who came from the ministry of the 144,000 of Revelation 7, 1 through 8. Obviously, the living fountains of water that he says he's going to take the crying multitude that we can't count, and he's going to lead them because he's the lamb. The lamb is leading. Isn't that interesting? Usually, you would think the lambs are following the shepherd. Well, he is the lamb. He's also the shepherd. So the lamb shepherd is leading them to the fountains of water, and that's where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So something about the living waters of or fountains of waters are critical to the wiping away of every tear. John 7:38, no surprise, the apostle John in his gospel would explain Revelation 7:17 7, because he wrote a book. He gives us the information needed to explain Revelation 7:17, 7, why they're crying. So let's go ahead and read that really fast because we have to do everything fast today. Or we will not get through this. And again, skip to the end if you can't deal with this. Where am I here? On that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Now, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles has the fountain of living waters in its theme. On that last day of that taber- of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is seven days wrong, uh, everyone wonders why it's not uh, ten days. That's Yom Kippur. Remember that debate? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. How loud did he cry out, do you think? saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is Revelation 7.17. That's the multitude is, is now doing this. What Christ said, And this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That is a very misunderstood verse, by the way. Oh. Seven. It's been a couple of months, so I feel pretty good about it. On the feast day of Sukkot, the seventh feast day, the feast of tabernacles, the seventh day of the seven-day feast, Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, stood and cried out. Again, how loud did he say that? How many people were there? He's talking about that fountain of living waters that he himself is. He cried out that he is the living waters, the living fountains of waters, the waters that end thirst, John 4.14, the well of water springing up to into eternal life. Thus the lamb slain is leading the crying great multitude in 7.17 of Revelation to the living fountains of waters that he talks about that John records in 7.37 and 38. And this wipes away every tear from their eyes, every single one of them of that innumerable group has their tears wiped away, this uncountable multitude. How many tears is that? 
how many tears of sorrow have, have we ourselves, this huge crowd of people in my living room, that would be three of us, how many tears have we cried? And what have you cried over? Over what? Try to imagine this multitude is shedding tears while they're in heaven. What, what's the problem? It's not tears of joy that is obvious. What does wipe away every tear mean? What does it entail? I submit that the context attributes, I'm sorry, the sorrows to death, physical death. They have come out of a significant period of death. Billions of them killed. 1 John 5, 6 through 8, again, no surprise, Apostle John. He's going, to, he's going to tell you what he wrote in Revelation, either before unknowingly or after knowingly. We can never be sure about that. But 1 John 5, 6 through 8, again, speaking, writing about Christ. This is he who came by water and blood, which, of course, is John 11, I'm sorry, John 19, 34. Water and blood. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately water and blood came out. Living blood, living water. I am the living fountains of water, of living waters, is what he said. Living blood and living water. Christ is the life-giving blood and the living fountains of waters that end thirst. He's always saying that. Come to me, I will give you, I will give you water and you will never thirst again. What does thirst mean to God? Ezekiel 47.15, Revelation 21.4, they give us more information. As does Zechariah 14.8-9, Revelation 22.1-2, John 4.13-14, and 14, Jeremiah 2.13. I have a note to read John uh, 4. This, these are the famous verses we all know. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, because this is the woman at the well. What does he mean when he says thirst? What is he talking about? But whoever drinks of the waters that I shall give him, because he is the fountains of living waters, that he gives you what? Eternal life. He's already told you that. She doesn't know that. But whoever drinks of the waters that I shall give him will never thirst. But the waters that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of waters bringing up into everlasting life. So there you go. He actually told you. What he is, he is the source of the fountains of the living waters that give eternal life, everlasting life. Notice that John spends a lot of time on the symbol of thirst no more, never thirst. We should wonder why. He obviously knows it's a proof that Christ is who he says he is, that he's God himself. Christ tells us through the woman at the well the primary meaning of thirst. She came to the well. Why did she come to the well? What's her reason? She needed what? Water. Why did she need water? Because if she doesn't have water, what will happen to her and her children, her family? They'll die. You got It's one of the dependencies, isn't it? I got to have air. I got to have water. I got to have food. I have to have rest. I have to have light. Those are dependencies that God give us, gives us. Jesus gave to this woman this incredible tr- truth. Because without water, we physically die. The wonderful promise of the life-giving fountains of water springing up into everlasting. Life, living, everlasting living. What is the definition of life? Again, you should all yell it at me, the New Jerusalem. It isn't being alive like this. This is sinfulness. Thirst no more attaches to wipe away every tear. 
He puts thirst no more and wiping away every tear together in Revelation 7.17. So how do those two fit together? How is this so? Obviously, thirst, John 19.28, is included in the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. The fifth of the seven sayings. What does Christ say? The fifth of the seven sayings. He says, I thirst. So, he says, this is God on the cross. This is an incredibly difficult saying. Let me say this really fast. All seven uh, of these sayings of Christ from the cross, they're a unit. There is is extraordinary complication. Um, and I wish I had time to do it. I don't today for sure. But Matthew 27, 34, Mark 15, 23, John 19, 29, Luke 23, 36, all are talking about thirst. And they place the two wines mysteries uh, to Christ's fifth saying. That's a problem that I will tell you that is yet to be fully understood or unraveled. Let me put it this way. The two wines that Christ gets and thirsting and the fountains of the living waters in which you will never thirst are all together in one little box. I'm trying to make a ball, but I'll make a box. And it's not uncommon, sadly, to read commentaries of the seven sayings that simplify what the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things, said from the cross, which they simplify it. They make it really childish, almost. And to be blunt, what they write is dumb. It's stupidly dumb. They don't understand that this is God, Almighty Creator of all things. The Lord God. He's doing something with those two wines and saying, I thirst, taking you back into the feast day of tabernacles for the fountains of the living water, going to 717 of Revelation. He's doing this because he's trying to tell us something that fits with the other six things that he says from the cross. Stupidly dumb is not a redundancy. Look it up. Use the fonts. If you just take the two wines... They're really demanding. Incredible. They get sour wine and narcotic wine. The sour wine had gall, Matthew 27, 34, mixed in. Gall is a poison. And God tasted the poison. Why does he taste the poison? He's omniscient. He knew it was poison. Duh. But they don't say that, these guys that write these commentaries on the wine. They don't say that. Wrestle with it. It, it for years. He tasted it, did not drink it. Again, you, you're going to fight this for years. David also knew it was a poison, uh, Psalm 69:21. So you see Christ connecting to David, which we would expect, right? The wine with myrrh, he did not take that. Myrrh is a narcotic likely given to control the executed, they say all the time, Mark 15, 23. How does it apply to Christ? How does the poisoned and the narcotic apply to Christ? They'll say really dumb things here. They'll say that he didn't want to dull his mind. (sighs) Anyway, why did God taste the poison but did not drink it? What does that mean? Knowingly. Let me help you with the question. How did God taste the poison death? 
but did not drink it. How did he do it? I should insert here that there exists a lot of disagreement. You have the one wine position and the two wine position. You're going to pick a side here. Pack a lunch. Again, devote 25 years of your life. Notice how it got more, more difficult. You got to, you got to go to the Nazaretic oath of six, three numbers. Now you're into Samson in order to figure out the two wines mystery. I have the two wines view. Isn't that obvious? Because that's what I'm calling it, the two wines mystery. But there is a one wine view. Um, I think the two wines has the most strength. Two wines, two different times. I think it has the most strength. Genesis 2, 7, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, but don't allow that to influence you. I have no interest in interfering with your free will. Go do what you want. My goal is to make you defend your free will. You have it. Can you defend it? Arrive at the, your goal is to arrive at the most Christ honoring view. And the majority of commentaries will say, as I just said, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God turned down the murder because he, God, did not wish to be high. Ugh. And risk being, then, then if he's high or if his senses are dulled, you'll see that all the time, then he's He's at risk for being unable to complete his redemptive work on the cross. Oh my gosh. Do you understand why I call it stupidly dumb? It's not a redundancy. He was tempted, they say, because, you know, he's under a lot of pain, this omnipotent God. And uh, and he's thirsty. So he wanted to drink that, but, you know, he thought, no, better probably not. It's also stupid. I can barely present it without retching. It's simple-minded. It's not Christ-honoring. It's dishonoring. It borders on heresy and blasphemy. That's not true. It actually is heresy and blasphemy. It's a mess. So I've got the two wines, the first wine, the second wine, the refused wine, the received wine, John 19.30. The two wines are secured, bound to I thirst. He put them together. Christ God put I thirst, thirsting, his definition of thirsting with those two wines. And, and it is finished. He also does, it is finished because the fifth saying and the sixth saying, I, I thirst. And it is finished. They're tied together to the two wines and the fountains of the, and the feast day of tabernacle. That's how it fits together. Do you think it's easy? Please stop. Quick uh, side note to our audience. If you want to find his lectures on... Uh, on the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, just go to Sermon Audio, look for 2013, and it's uh, toward the end of uh, of, uh, of July 2013. Start there and go on. 2013. I did this uh, lecture before. You did not have this one, but but you did the seven sayings on the cross. Okay, I probably right about there. I, the chances that I got into the two wines mystery no. is pretty small. You didn't get into that. Okay, well that's good. So something new. It's hard to, to to come up with something different every week. It is. It's really hard. Yeah. Uh, I got to tell you. And sometimes, like I was telling Dave before, I'm not sure I did it this week. Okay. First wine, second wine, you have the refused wine and you have the received wine. And again, they're tied together with the two sayings, the fifth and the sixth saying, and they also go into the feast day of tabernacles. If you got that, you'll be able to work your way through it. <coughs> Excuse me. 
I hope. Let me reemphasize that all seven of these sayings compose a singular proclamation, a singular announcement. Remember, he gives a proclamation to the angels how, that he imprisoned. How complicated do you think that proclamation was? I'm saying to you those seven sayings from the cross are similar. They are also a proclamation to us, to humankind. That's how it fits on the board. Okay, for today we're dealing with God's definition of thirst, which leads us to Jeremiah 2.13. Boy, I'm doing great. I knew I had to go fast. I can slow down. I can goof off. When did we start? Did we start it on time? Oh, my goodness. I can get something to eat. I'm doing so well. <laughs> this is the end that I told people to skip to this part. We're dealing with God's definition of thirst, and that gives us Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils, Jeremiah 2.13 says. Two evils, oh, two wines, two witnesses, two advents, two tablets. But we have the single wine, never mind. I won't, I won't pick on them. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountains of living waters. Revelation 7.17. Jeremiah 2.13. And and hewn themselves for themselves cisterns that can hold no waters. So Christ is the one that holds the fountains of the living waters. And Israel rejected him, forsook him, and, and, and substituted cisterns that can hold no water. Again, repeating, this is why the living water came out of Christ at John 19.34 on the cross. He is the fountain of living waters. And he demonstrates it. There's two evils. Israel rejected the living water and they made vessels that could never, never hold water. Did mankind today make vessels that cannot hold the fountain of living waters? That's all we do. Again, Christianity is exclusionary, they say. They're not true. Christianity, of course, is all-encompassing. But they say it's the only... You guys say it's the only way to get to God. That's because that's what God says. If there are many gods, there would be many ways to get to many gods. There are not many gods. There is only one God. And how many ways to get to one God do you think? It's simple math. Is he, is he able, will you grant him the authority to, to decide how you can approach him? Take me, Genesis 15. Accumulating all the components as best we can on one Sunday, knowing that I left out a whole bunch, I omitted many of them. We end up with this for today. Thirst is a biblical symbol used by Christ himself of resurrection and life as he defines it to New Jerusalem, not as we define it. Once again, the answer is resurrection, just like it is in Job, culminating into eternal life. Only Christ can hold living water, and you have to have living water. How does God wipe away every tear? Because he takes them to the living water. Why did Christ give the star fallen from heaven, Revelation 9? The key to the abyss. Why did he release Abaddon and the four angels? Christ ultimately gives that key to Satan, knowing that he will do exactly that. 
And you might not think this was an appropriate segue. But it is. Mm-hmm. It's continuation. All of that stuff. And I just dumped all over the place. And everybody went. All of that helps you understand why Christ gave the key to Satan. And why knowing that he would open the abyss and release Abaddon and the four angels. And the four angels will kill two billion people that are at Revelation 7.17. Crying. Hopefully you'll understand how it all fits here. For those of you who have been at Cliffside for 20 plus years, and my Bible studies in this house go back to, let me think about it, 1990, I think. No, before that, Lori screaming from the bedroom saying, no, way before that. So it would be 1985, maybe, when I started Bible studies here. The reason for that wall up there that you're looking at that now has a handrail on it is I I wanted that wall as a place to project. uh, You know, I I was going to have a projector instead of a dry erase board. So that was part of the process. (sighs) Hopefully you're going to figure out ahead of me, especially those of you who've been listening for 20 plus years, you likely remember me attempting to characterize the uh, warfare, the objective of Satan, the star fallen. Uh, again, Satan cannot, I was talking to Dave and Terry about this before, Satan cannot defeat the omniscient and infinite God. He knows that. Satan is not delusional, he's cunning. There's a difference. By the abundance of his traffic, which is his lies, he became filled with violence and a profane thing. That's what Ezekiel 28.16 says. Satan lifted himself up because of his incredible beauty. He corrupted the fullness of his wisdom for the sake of his splendor. Ezekiel 28.12, 28.17. Ultimately, Satan declared that he could lift himself, he could ascend, he could rule over all of the angels and be like let me put that word on the board or I can't. I got no room. Be like the Most High God, Isaiah 14:12 through 14. He's not going to be the Most High God. He's going to be like Him. And that tells you that Satan understood the difference. We think like is the same. It's not the same. But Proverbs 16:18, pride goeth before destruction. Pride is a weakness. My simile for the, as I was saying earlier off camera here, for the contention between Satan and the Most High God, the Creator of all things, Satan being a created thing, my simile for this this contention is a chess board or a chess game. I studied chess. I played quite a bit when I was younger. Uh, nowadays, I do these chess puzzles online because... I'm trying to recover some of my capability. It's a long process because I am 68 years old now. And I don't think very good. But I'm still trying. I do these puzzles all the time. Uh, My goal is to teach all of the grandchildren to play high-level chess, which if I can get them to an ELO, or actually it's an ELO. It's ELO. It's named for Arpad ELO. He's He's a physicist. It's a mathematical construction. I'd like to get them to between 1400 and 1800. I was before, between 1400 and 1800 when I was a boy, 18 years old. So I'm hoping to get them to that, and I think I can. That's my goal. 
because I want them to see cause and effect. I want them to watch a chessboard and go, if I move here, these eight moves are going to happen to me and I'll lose. So I'm not going to move there. The application to real life is quite valuable. If I drive 90 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, I'm likely to lose control of my car. Because that zone is rated 30 miles an hour because it's not able to accept 90 mile an hour traffic. There's some problem with it. It isn't banked. It isn't, doesn't have guardrails. So getting cause and effect is very important. Knowing that when you make a move, somebody else is going to counter that is incredibly valuable to you as a person, I believe. And that's why I want to teach them to play high-level chess because there's no other game where that occurs at that level. It's amazing what it can do. Just 64 squares. Anyway, Satan, in my opinion, is attempting to reach a draw. We'll call that in chess a draw, where you offer a draw to somebody and they accept it at, at, at best. And that's not likely ever to happen. You're talking about omniscient God. It's not possible. It's ridiculous, actually, that God offers Satan a draw. Because that would put them into equality, and there will never be equality. So Satan doesn't plan for equality. He's not delusional, as I said. He's going to be like God. He's not going to be... The same as God. He's going to be a, uh, a uh, how do I put it? Uh, he's going to have some kind of relationship, but it certainly isn't going to lie. It isn't going to get to the draw. So Satan, in my view, is, and I've said this many times, plans for a stalemate. A stalemate in chess is reduced to just his king in an unmovable state. That's a stalemate. So he can't move. But he also can't be taken. He's not in check, but he's in an unmovable condition. And that would be like God. Not God, merely like somehow something to do with God. And that is the why of Revelation 9, why Christ gave Satan the key. And I know you're going, what, 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 what? huh? I got that. <laughs> Revelation 9 is the New Testament complement. So what I look for in Revelation, I look for in the New Old Testament. What two books, I'm sorry, when, when you say Revelation, what is the book that is the complement to Revelation? Do you know? Do you know? It's Genesis. I have the Noadic Flood and I have the Tribulation. There's the complementary aspect of Genesis and Revelation, the first and the last, right? Christ even demonstrates that principle in Revelation. Revelation 9 is the New Testament complement to Genesis 6, 5-6. through 6. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every single thought, the intent of the thoughts of, the, of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5-6. through 6. Revelation 9, Genesis 6, 5 through 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man. Jennifer asked a great question about that. And God was grieving in his heart, grieving for the men and the women who had chosen evil continually, and they were eternally lost, and God loves the wicked. Now that's a paraphrase of Genesis 6, 5 through 6, but I wanted to include that because of Jennifer, so you understand that sorry does not mean he didn't want to make them. He was sorry for their destination that they had chosen. And Satan's great weakness is his hebris. Hebris. Hubris. Where did I get hebris from? 
This is hubris, his malignant narcissism. He believes God's weakness is God's love for the wicked, the lost, and mankind in the angelic realm. That's what he believes is a weakness. That is not a weakness. That's a strength. But Satan has this tremendous amount of pride and self-confidence. So that's his weakness. Genesis 6, 5 through 6 demonstrates the hypothesis, the principle, if you will. So does Revelation 9. Revelation 9 is the exposing, is the evidence of what's going on in Genesis 6, 5 through 6. And that is only evil continually. You see, only evil continually is the state of the lake of fire. If you're in the lake of fire, there's no one in control of it. What's inside the lake of fire? Only evil continually. I asked, I made a metaphor last week. Would you release somebody who is never going to stop killing other people? Of course you wouldn't release them from prison. In the lake of fire is only evil continually. Which one of those people and or beings do you want to let out? That's the state of the lake of fire, which then begins to answer the many why questions of Matthew 25, 41, which is why did he create the lake of fire? Why doesn't he just leave him in prison? He doesn't. First uh, Peter three eighteen through twenty. Second Peter two four. Jude six. Jude seven. Sodom is placed with Genesis six. He says the strange flesh of Sodom is what happened in Genesis six. The Nephilim. Giving, that's the definition of strange flesh. People think that that's something completely different. You have to understand that. We have animal strange flesh and human strange flesh, and that should help you understand what happened in Jude 6 and 7. Why do the four angels and the 200 million demonic soldiers kill the great multitude of Revelation 7? 17. The answer is, they have been only evil continually for 4,500 years. Preparing, they know the hour, they know the day, they know the month and the year, and they have been preparing. And they're only evil continually. There isn't a a speck of remorse. There isn't any sadness for their fate. There is only evil continually. And God releases them. Their prison has a key. See, there's your question, isn't it? Why did He put a? Why did He make it possible to release them? Because they must be released again. That's Revelation. Uh, and Satan must be released. Revelation 20.10, I think. No, sorry. The prison has a key, a door, an exit. The lake of fire has no egress. You can't escape from that. Revelation 20.10. The abyss where Satan is bound has a key. Satan must be released out of that abyss. You have to say to yourself, why was it necessary to release these angels? And why is it necessary also to release Satan from the abyss where he's going to be held for a thousand years? Uh, and that's why Satan is not cast into the lake of fire at Revelation 19.20 because he has to go into a prison and he has to be released from it. And you've got to say to yourself, why is that necessary? Revelation 9.15, the direct killing of human beings by angelic beings. Let me repeat that. The direct killing of human beings by angelic beings. Where else in the scripture have demonic beings killed human beings? It's unprecedented. 
And you have to look at that and go, my gosh, this is such a change of procedure here. How is it that he does this and he gives them permission to kill? That's antithetical, obviously, to Job 1 and Job 2, where he doesn't give that permission. He's never given that permission. He's given interaction that resulted in killing. Genesis 6, the strange flesh resulted in all kinds of violence. But the direct killing of human beings by demons has never been permitted until... Revelation 9.15. So Revelation 9.15 stands alone in Scripture. That'll, that got to get you going, okay. Something's amazing happening here. And this is a chess move by Christ. And, and Satan complies. He accepts what I'm going to call the king's gambit. Now that's a joke. <laughs> but the king gives him a key. And he releases these angels. Does he know why the king gave him the key to release the angels? Can he figure it out? Does he, why does he take the key and do this? Is this to his advantage? What do you think? It's not. Again, it's a chess move. It's obviously a trap. That's why it's called a gambit. The angels from the abyss, the pit, torment the unsealed, the unsaved. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation 9, 5. But they kill the sealed, the saved. Revelation 9, 15. So I have these two things. Oh, look, I might have two wines. Never mind. Can't stop myself from smacking them in the head with their ideas. There's 150 days for the unsaved to experience only evil continually. That's what's going to happen because these guys are only in the abyss here. The keys to Hades and death, they're only evil continually. And when you let them out, that's all they're going to do. They can't do anything else. They won't do anything else. They've had 45 years, 4,500 years to prepare for this hour, day, month, and year. And they're coming out. They know they're going to get to kill human beings and they're going to do it. But the first 150 days of this, the first, the Abaddon wave is 150 days of the unsaved to experience only continual evil with no hope of death. So my obvious question was, how many were saved? You're tortured, but you can't be killed. How many of you cry out for the hand of Christ? How many under this extreme torture from whom they worship? They worship these angels. It tells you so in Revelation 9. They worship these people, of these things. How many of these that are being tortured will call out, will, will abandon the worship and call out to Christ to save them? Joel 2.32. They see a glimpse, the motive of Satan, which is to send them to the lake of fire. That's what he wants to do. He wants as many in there as he can. This is his stalemate uh, process. He wants to cause grief in the heart of the loving God, which is exactly what God expresses in Genesis uh, 6, 5 through 6. That did not go unnoticed, that when God flooded the earth, he wept. They did not go unnoticed by Satan. How many reach again for the extended hand of salvation? Why kill those who will be resurrected to life? It doesn't seem to make sense. Is it to stop their witnessing? i got 144,000 out there that cannot be killed. They are protected until their mission assignments are complete. So you'd think I'd worry about those guys. Resurrection proves that there is no annihilation. Why would God resurrect only to extinguish? He won't. 
It makes no sense. He's about to resurrect two billion people. Think about that. All at once. Boom. You kill him, I resurrect him. Bang, mine. Boom, mine. Boom, boom, boom. I got angels coming up and down that ladder by the hundreds of millions grabbing these people. Now, the angels that are killing them have got to know that. They're, as fast as we can kill them, he's grabbing them. It's a waste of my time. He's made it futile. Why would they kill the saved? It's futile. Resurrection proves there's no annihilation. Why would God again resurrect only to extinguish him? The lie is wrecked by resurrection. The lie of Satan. The lie of Satan that says we are not, we don't have existence. We're going to be annihilated. Obviously, he's killing the saved to kill the unsaved. That's what Satan is doing. Exodus 17.3 And the people thirsted there for water and complained against Moses. Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, to kill our children, and kill our animals with thirst? That's what they said in 17.7 of Exodus. 17.3-17. Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, kill our children, kill our animals with thirst? The lie of Satan is identical. Substitute, uh, they say that to Moses. The people thirsted here, for, there for water and complained against Moses. So substitute God for Moses. Substitute uh, brought with created. Substitute kill with annihilate. And it will read like this. And the people thirsted there for water and complained against God? Why is it that you have created us only to kill, I'm sorry, only to annihilate us, annihilate our children and annihilate the animals with thirst? Because you won't give us the fountain of living water. It's all a lie. So that is what the lie of Satan is. And you see it all over Scripture. The lie of Satan is identical. God calls this Evil thinking. Testing his love, his goodness. Remember, he rebukes them because they asked in Revelation, I'm sorry, Exodus 17, they asked, is the Lord dwelling among us or not? Oh, wow. That's the indwelling problem. And that's how it all starts to go together. And I quit. One minute late. Wow! A new record. Is that a record? I think it's a record. Yeah, okay. Pastor, Mm -hmm. can we have a prayer before we go on vacation? Yes, we can. Are we going to pray that we go on vacation? Can we have it recorded, please? (laughs) Oh, I guess we can. I used to do that, didn't I? Yes. How come I don't do that anymore? Pray for your internet congregation and missing congregation as well. Well, okay. I can't even remember how I did it. I know I did it. Why didn't why don't I remember? What how did I do it? I waited for the last song, right? Mm-hmm. And then I came up and then I I uh Dismissed the people, and I always had something to pray about, but I don't remember 
It's like that's like a lifetime ago for me. Isn't that crazy? Okay, let's let's try to replicate it here. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have given us every single word that we could imagine that tells us that uh, we have hope, we have joy. You are going to solve this. There is no possibility that you won't. You are in complete, total control, and you are just waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of those who will come to you in the tribulation. It is an amazing story of love and power and joy. And and we are so grateful uh, for this internet audience that listens to us. We don't know what to say to you guys. And we pray that you gain something out of this crazy old man here. And uh, we don't know how to thank you for everything you've done. We want you to be blessed. and We can't wait to see you all on that day when it comes. Ada Ruth Habershon, Song Day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. There was a special Father's Day sermon. Did you catch the father part? Kind of. The father cries for his children.